Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Mr. <laughs> Welcome to, uh, I guess, lesson two of uh, our theology class. Um, I, I like this quote, and quite honestly, I don't remember if it's my wording or, or A.W. Tozer's wording. Um, it's probably mostly his. I think the idea comes from him. But um, when we talk about theology, a lot of people think that uh, theology is kind of this lofty idea that academics pursue and normal Christians don't, don't really have to mess with, right? And so, uh, but he makes a point, and I think I kind of paraphrase it here. He says, uh, since mankind is created in the image of God and since our very existence, depend, existence depends upon his continued sustenance, it stands to reason that the answers to our most important questions and the remedies to our most important problems are at their very core theological in nature. And so when we think about, when, you know, when we study theology, we, we should not put it in the category of just some academic or intellectual exercise. It's the sort of thing that it might begin there, but it must penetrate the heart as well, okay? And so that's really what we want to try to do in this class is we want to talk about these, these academic topics, uh, divide them and think about them, you know, how do you say, cognitively, but we don't want to stop there. We actually want to look at these things in the context of the Christian life. And so as we're going along, if you're looking at some, you know, if, if we talk about some doctrine or some topic, and you don't think that it's, um, say, uh, applicable to the Christian life, hey, challenge me on it. Raise your hand and say, hey, you know, how, do, how does this impact the Christian life? And then um, I'll, what I'll probably do is end up turning it back to the rest of y'all, and we'll talk about that for a couple of minutes, because I think that's a very important, it's a key element of, of theology that is just not present in most theology classes. We tend to separate the intellectual from the heart, the brain from the heart, okay? Um, the mind from the, from the, the spirit. I think, I think Rob's leaving. So, um, all right. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, thank you for this morning and this time, um, this first uh, Sunday of the summer. Um, just help this, uh, this class to, to be something that is profitable and is glorifying to you and helps us to uh, get to know you a little bit better and in some ways maybe get to know each other a little bit better. Father, we love you. We trust you. Again, help us to glorify you in everything that we do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, there's a handful of people that weren't here last week, and that's okay. We're about to catch up with a pop quiz, all right? So um, I would say pencils down, but it's the beginning of the quiz, so that's probably um, not the right thing to say. All right, so question, what is theology? What's that? Go ahead. Okay, answer it this week. It's a, it's a study of God, okay? Um, does that mean just the study of God himself? Or is it other stuff? It's, all, it's basically the Christian life in relation to God, okay? And we're going to talk about a little bit later uh, here in the next few minutes, we're going to talk about kind of the different ways that we do theology the different ways that we think about it. You'll understand what that, that means here in just a few minutes. So how are theological doctrines similar to scientific laws? Anybody? Okay, established by God. Okay, good, yeah. So if you take uh, the laws of physics, those are established by God as well, aren't they? Okay, what else? Come on, you guys were talking a lot last week, and it's really quiet today. Okay, come on. We're going to have this awkward silence until you start talking. Okay. Who, what? They're observable? Okay. Um, how is a theological doctrine observable? Okay, you can see the creation. Okay. So um, in terms of general revelation, God created the world, and you can see, according to Romans 1, you can look out and you can see 
uh, his um, eternal power and divine, divine attributes in, in creation. Good. Okay. All right. Well, I think both are observations based on the underlying data. So going back, you said they're observable. They are observations and they're on underlying data. Now, I hate calling the Bible data. That drives me crazy, but I didn't, I don't know. It's, I guess it's the appropriate word here. Um, like we talked about last week, a, a chemist will um, go in and, and do experiments with you know, acids and bases and Bunsen burners and different things like that. And then they begin to make observations and formulate laws associated with those observations, right? And then they go back and they test those laws. But it's a similar sort of thing with theology, except rather than acids and bases, we're looking at the Bible. And we're seeing how God has operated throughout the history of the world and throughout the history of Israel and the church. And we make observations about that. And then we begin to, to say, okay, this is the way... Um, God operates. And so these are theological doctrines, right, that, um, that tell us about, um, more about God and the way that he interacts with, with the world. Both, are both scientific laws and theological doctrines, are, they're discovered, they're not invented. So it's not like you want to be a creative theologian, just like you don't want to be a creative scientist, right? Because if you are creating things, then you're, you're, you're generating opinions. You're generating human innovation. You're not, you're not um, discovering God's truths. Does it make sense? Okay. And neither are a matter of preference or opinion. And so what that means is, if Caleb and I have a disagreement about a, um, about a doctrine... Uh, something to either it's an interpretation of the Bible or some uh, theological doctrine, you know, salvation or, or eschatology or whatever the case may be, at least one of us is wrong. Possibly both of us are wrong. More than likely, it's just him. But it, it's um, so, um, and so the idea is when we as Christians, sometimes we agree to disagree. But it's very healthy for us to discuss differences that we have in a loving way, right? We don't want to win an argument, Randy, okay? <laughs> the goal is not to win the argument. The goal is to understand what the other person is saying and then maybe try to fill in the gaps, right? And not in a sort of uh, condescending manner where, you know, you're talking to somebody and you're thinking, oh, bless your little heart, you know? It, it, that's not the, the way we want to be. What we want to do is when we sit down with somebody that disagrees with us theologically, the first thing we have to say is, or ask ourselves is, do they have a point? And we try to look at it, look at um, the doctrine, the interpretation, whatever it may be, kind of understand what they're saying, and then say, is there any merit to what they're saying? And if there is, maybe that maybe that doesn't necessarily overturn what it is but we believe, but it can do one of two things. It can either tweak it a little bit so that we have a more comprehensive view of the world, a more complete view of, of theology, or um, it can strengthen what it is that we believe by helping us to understand what we don't believe, right? That's why I love talking to atheists. I go to atheists with lunch at, um, at work whenever I have the opportunity. I want to hear what they have to say. And every single time I come away, actually it's getting rarer and rarer these days, but when I come away, I come away strengthened because they may offer something, um, ask a question that I don't have an answer to. But if I don't have an answer to that question, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back and research it. And I want to understand where they're coming from, you know, why they're saying what they're saying, and then I want to go in and understand it from a Christian perspective. And so I've filled in a lot of gaps in, in my um, understanding of the Christian faith um, by talking to atheists. Okay? Are theological doctrines infallible? No. Scripture is infallible. The Bible's infallible. The Bible's inerrant. But Theological doctrines are, are, they come out of the Bible. I hate, I hate to say derived, but they're derived from the Bible. And so they can go awry. Uh, 
properly understood, the Bible never goes awry. Our interpretation can't. Our interpretation of Scripture can be wrong, but Scripture itself is never wrong. All right. Okay, cool. So that was a review um, of last week, and so congratulations, everybody. In 15 minutes, we, we did a whole hour. So, all right, we're going to get into, into some terms here. And the reason I'm going to throw these terms out is it's not so much that I want to build, build your vocabulary. It's I, I want to throw some concepts out that, I want, that I'd like you to think about. Okay? All right. So the first is hermeneutics. It's a great word, isn't it? Hermeneutics. Um, who can tell me what hermeneutics is? It's a bummer that Stephen Curdo is not here today because he actually teaches hermeneutics at, at school. Oh, what's hermeneutics? Uh, it's a proper expression of the way you interpret Scripture, the way you interpret certain Excellent. It's the principles of biblical interpretation. Right. It, it has to deal with... Um, with interpreting the Bible. Um, when I was in Bible college, we interpreted it as the art and the science of biblical interpretation, right? And the problem is a lot of people have trouble with that, that word art, and so I didn't want to throw that out, out there. Um, so the, the principles of, of biblical interpretation, and it is a science um, to the extent that there are principles, there are best practices, there are things that um, we try to... Uh, Principles that we try to adhere to when we're interpret, uh, interpreting Scripture, when we, as we're interpreting uh, Scripture. Um, but it's also an art. And, and you'll see why I say that here in a little bit, because sometimes it's, it's, it can be pretty tough to get down to, to what, what a particular passage actually means. All right? Exegesis. Um, no, it's not former Jesus. Um, it, exegesis. What is exegesis? Don't don't let Randy ask, answer this question again. Anybody else? Yeah. It, it's the uh, um, literal interpretation. Um, I think that's pretty close. What it is? Well, let me tell you what it's not. First of all, um, I looked this up on the interwebs where everything is true, and it turns out this one was not true. Um, actually, it's close, but it's it's a little bit oversimplified. They say exegesis, um, things like dictionary.com or something, says uh, exegesis is a critical explanation or interpretation of text. Okay? Problem is, I think there's a nuance that's lost there, and you'll see that here in just a second. The word literally means to lead out of. Okay? It's Greek, to lead out of. Okay? And so exegesis, like Jessica was insinuating, is it's, Discovering the intended meaning of a given text. In other words, think of ex, exa, exit, where you're, you're, you're going out of something, you're pulling the meaning out of the text. Does that make sense? So you're getting the meaning out of the text. Yes, ma'am. So this would be something where uh, knowing the cultural norms of the day and the language they used and studying that sort of thing would be helpful. Yes, it would. We, you, what you're talking about in studying um, the cultural context, understanding the context, would be a hermeneutical principle. Isn't that a great word, hermeneutical? That's not really smart, right? Hermeneutical principle that we use to perform exegesis, to get the meaning, the, the true meaning out of the, the text, okay? Now, why do I keep saying out, out, out of the text? Because there's also this thing called Eisegesis. Now, what do you think that is? If exegesis is out, eisegesis is what? It, right? It's the interpretation of a text, as of the Bible, by reading into it one's own ideas. Okay? So what you do is you bring your own, own ideas to the table, and then you begin to interpret it um, in light of those ideas. Okay? So why is eisegesis a bad practice? I'm sorry? Okay, yeah, so you get into, um, you, you get out of it what you want it to say as opposed to what 
the author was intending it to say, right? Okay, cool. And what position does that put you in? Go back to the garden. What, what was the original sin? It was knowledge of good and evil. And you could say determining what is good and evil. Okay? And so eisegesis, when you take your own ideas, you project them onto the Bible, then what you're doing is you are essentially taking God's word and you're making it your word. You're putting yourself in the, in the place of God. Yes, sir. Sure. Um, so, um, actually, we'll, we'll answer that here with the next question. Have you ever witnessed eisegesis in action or done it yourself? Yes, ma'am. Okay, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, what, how is that eisegesis? Absolutely, yeah. That's that's a great example. It it um, it it cheapens and materializes what um, what the Bible is saying there, right? And so that's a good example. Did everybody hear that? Okay, cool. Except for the people online. Um, yes, sir. Nice Jesus is when you write your sermon and then you try to go to the Bible to find something to back it up. That's a that's a great point too. Yeah. It's when you write your sermon, and then you go to the Bible to, to try to back it up. Yeah. If you can't say amen, say ouch. So that's a Bodie Bauckham thing. So um, I'll give you a really, really, really gross example, right? Um, well, when I say gross, I don't mean it is disgusting, but anyway, it's not going to gross you out, but it's, it's gross. Um, so years ago, there was a, um, a scholar named Phyllis Treble at the Society of Biblical Literature. And she presented a paper. Um, she was a feminist scholar, okay? So she was a feminist scholar, so she, she presented a paper on uh, the whole issue with, you know, the battle between Elijah and, and Jezebel. And essentially what she said was that um, the reason we all um, worship Yahweh is because Elijah beat out Jezebel. But if Jezebel would have won, then we would all worship Baal. Okay? And so it's this, you know, taking feminist theology and, and injecting it onto, um, uh, onto Scripture. We see that with what's called liberation theology, where everything is viewed through the eyes of, um, of being freed, that was very pop that came about in the late 19th century in America where you had slaves who were longing for freedom you know they they were um, there was kind of revival because they were wanting to be freed from this world and they they wanted hope and so um, they were they were turning to Christianity and a theology came out of that that emphasized um, being freed out of bondage everywhere okay um a couple of years ago, I can go on and on and on, right? A couple of years ago, uh, Andy was actually um, going to another church. And I think it was three years ago, Super Bowl Sunday, um, the sermon was, uh, I can't remember the exact passage, but the, the, the thesis of the sermon was that Jesus died for racism. Okay, now, yeah, Jesus did die for racism, but he died for adultery. And he died for all forms of idolatry, and he died for stealing, and he died for he had, he died for every sin. But what this guy did was he took a text, corrupted it, performed eisegesis, and made it the center of the biblical universe, because that's the hot thing right now, and that's what people do. So whether it's critical race theory, whether it's feminist theology, um, and the actual term is queer theology. Um, or just flat out Marxism, people read the Bible through um, eisegetical lenses and then um, interpret it in that manner. Does that make sense?
Yes, ma'am. There's also the uh, liberal Christians, those that don't believe in the supernatural at all. Because uh, I would say they're pretty obviously reading into the Bible their materialist worldview. Right. So, yeah, so... Um, so you have liberal theologians, which has nothing to do with politics, okay? It's people that don't actually believe in the supernatural, but they come to the Bible, and they begin to, uh, like Rudolf Boltman is an example of the early 20th century, did not believe in the afterlife, did not believe in the spiritual world at all. But he would preach sermons on how Jesus was resurrected in the hearts and minds of his followers. Right? So he's performing eisegesis, because he's taking his worldview and he's projecting it onto the Bible. It's a dangerous place to be. Yes, ma'am. Then these are also people that are going to be using our same language, very different things. Ah, that's a great point. Um, so they'll use our terms, they'll use our language, but then they rob it of all of its meaning, right? So when you and I say, when the Bible says Jesus was resurrected, we mean he was physically miraculously resurrected, right? Well, what this guy would do is um, basically say he was resurrected in the hearts and minds. So he, that, that isn't actually what... And he will talk about Jesus' resurrection, but he doesn't mean the same thing that you and I do. Okay? Good point. All right. And also, just at a more simpler level, if you sit in a circle and you read a passage and you say go around the circle and you say, what does this passage mean to you? You're, you're, that's what you're doing. You're performing eisegesis. All right. Would you expect it to be more or less prevalent in today's culture? And basically, we went off on the CRT stuff and feminist stuff. So, All right. So, question. What ideas... Oh, yeah. Uh, I would say there is a place for experiential how God's Holy Spirit in his redemption worked out in our Okay. Does that, does that mean that what the Bible means to you? Um, I don't mean application, but does it mean the actual meaning of the text? Does it mean that it means something different for you than it does for me? Uh, no, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit uses towards us highly Absolutely, yeah. You can't really understand the Bible without the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to um, enlighten his entire church um, to at different levels, basically, to understand Scripture, but it doesn't change the meaning of Scripture, right? So I think we're talking about two different things. So how would you put Isaac? My big, uh, one of my big overall challenges is that the primary, the primary translators for the scriptures today uh, are not God-fearing men, and yet we depend on them for, uh, for the scriptures that we hear for our Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, when we're talking about higher criticism, that's one of the things that we were talking about, you know, when we talked about CRT and feminist theology and stuff like that. I mean, you can get into form criticism and things of that nature, but I don't think this is really the form for that. Um, and then worldview. I, I said Jesus, I would say another, another way to possibly look at it that's more than just the theological perspective is uh, our worldview that the, that the Bible does have something to say about every area of life. And Christians may say... Yeah, we talked about that last week. Okay. Um, so what ideas do you bring to the Bible? So it's not like you're a blank slate, right? And then you walk in, you open up your Bible, and then you, it, your life does not impact the way that you read the Bible, right? So let me ask you a question. Now, look, we, we're not going to settle these here, okay? Um, I'm just throwing out a couple of things, and my goal is to not settle this. My goal is to get you to think, okay? All right. So first, do we greet one another with a holy kiss? No. Okay? 
Does it look like a suggestion? No. Holy hug, yeah. Half hug, yeah. <laughs> Side hug, right? Absolutely. So do we agree with, you know, do we greet one, one another with a holy kiss? No, we don't. Do we wash one another's feet? Jesus said, uh, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Does it look like it's optional? Okay. So why don't we do these things? That is a question, by the way. Yes, ma'am. Because we interpret it not literally, but slightly more figuratively. Greet each other with a holy kiss could mean greet each other with gladness of heart and uh, bearing one with one another and such. Uh, washing one another's feet could simply mean service generally. Maybe it means washing someone's feet. Maybe it means doing their yard work. Maybe it means sorts of things. Okay, good. We'll take that as a good answer. Okay? So those things, the holy kiss and the washing one another's feet, would be cultural, spe- culturally specific, um, I'll call them implementations, of those commands, right? Of serving one another, greeting one another jovially, that sort of thing, right? Okay. If it's cultural, is it okay for the Lord's Supper to be cookies and milk instead of bread and wine? Because that's maybe more along the lines of our of our culture. If it's cultural, should we rethink our position on homosexuality? Because homosexuality is becoming a cultural norm. So if we look at these things above, if we look at these, th- these, these first two examples, and we say we don't do those because maybe they're cultural specifics, then can we apply that same principle to these other two? And if not, why not? Now again, I don't want to answer that question here. But what I do want to do is get you to understand when you're reading the Bible, why are you interpreting some things one way and other things another way. What are the principles by which you do that? Okay, I just want you to think through that. And at some point, we'll do a, a hermeneutics class, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Yes, sir? Well, it says wash your feet. Yeah, yeah. But that, that's the point that I'm making. I, I do think it is uh, humble service to, to others. And I think specifically the reason washing your feet was a thing was because, I mean, they wore sandals and they were out in the dirty, dusty stuff, and it was one of the grossest things that you could do, and it was almost like the ultimate act of humility. Today, it would probably be more something like um, cleaning a toilet or something of that nature, right? And so... Um, I do think it's culturally specific, but what we have to do is we have to think. I want you to think, why, when you interpret the Bible, do we apply cultural specifics to one thing and not to the others? And I think there's really good answers for these other two, and we'll talk about them later. All right? All right. Another term, progressive revelation. What does progressive revelation mean? Yes, sir. Throughout history, God reveals himself more and more as time goes on. That's just about perfect, I think. Teaching that God has revealed himself and his will through the scriptures with increasing clarity as more and more of the scriptures were written. And I was thinking about this morning, I was sitting out on the couch, and I was going through my slides, and it's like, I don't think clarity is the right word there. Maybe uh, increasing specificity. Um, Kind of that's sort of, not a great word, specificity. Um, but yeah, you get you get the concept. Like Randy said, it's more and more, right? He reveals himself more and more um, throughout the history of the Bible. And then that stops basically in uh, the first century. Does this mean that later revelation corrected 
earlier revelation? No, it doesn't. It doesn't correct it. What it does is it clarifies it, maybe it amplifies it, gives us something a little more, a little more specific. Progressive revelation is not movement from error to truth, but from less complete to more complete. All right, so through progressive revelation out there, it's tightly coupled to our first classification of, of theology, okay? The first kind of theology that we want to talk about. Biblical theology seeks to understand the progressive unfolding of God's special revelation throughout history. So it's it's like doing theology um, at, uh, acknowledging progressive revelation. Okay? Um, and we'll get to some examples here in just a second. Biblical theology is, in essence, historical and chronological. Okay? So if you think about, well, actually we're going to get to examples here in a second. Okay? So the concept of the Lord's temple throughout the Old and New Testaments. Okay, let's take a temple. What's the definition of a temple? It's where God, go ahead. Right, God's dwelling place. It's a place where God's um, presence is manifested in a very special way. Okay, so what would have been, with that definition, what would have been the very first temple um, in, in the world or in the Bible? The garden, okay? G.K. Beale did a lot of work on this where, um, you know, the garden is described, the way it's described is described as a temple. And then the work that Adam is doing is described as like that of a, of a priest, basically. So what would have been the next temple? Tabernacle. Tabernacle. It was the tent that held the, the Ark of the Covenant, and it would it traveled around with, with, with Israel, right? And then... And then the, the Solomon's Temple, right, which was built on the Temple Mount, and then it was destroyed. And then you had replaced by Herod's Temple, right? Um, well, replaced 70 or so years later and then beautified, basically, by, by Herod. And then after that, the, that temple was destroyed, right? So where does that leave the temple? Where are the temple? His believers, right? The hearts of believers, that's God's special dwelling place on, on earth. So as you're doing biblical theology, what you're doing is saying, okay, I want to do biblical theology of the temple. And you study, if you study that, you begin with the garden, you work your way through the, the tabernacle um, to um, uh, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, and then finally um, the, the believer. Okay. And so that's an example of doing, of doing biblical theology. And so those um, different aspects inform one another as you're, as you're doing that. Uh, the Messiah is another example. What's the first messianic passage in the Bible? Genesis? Genesis 3.15, right? It's the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. You don't get a lot of Messiah out of that, do you? Right? You don't really understand that that's what that's talking about until centuries later, right? You have this vague prophecy that's um, a seed, you know, um, and then of course you work through the Old Testament and it culminates in Christ, in the coming of Christ as the Messiah. Okay, so that's that's an example of biblical theology. Now. From a different perspective, biblical theology can also be um, the study of the distinctive treatment of themes and ideas in a particular book of the Bible or in those books written by a single human author. Okay, What do I mean by that? Think about Paul and James. Okay, And, and if you want to, think about Romans and, and James. Okay, What are the the main themes of, of Romans in, in, a, in a phrase. Justification by grace through faith. Okay? Paul talks about being in Christ, that sort of thing. But he is very keen on, it's not by works, it's by faith, by grace through faith. Okay? 
What does James say about faith? Says James says faith without works is what? Dead. Okay. Now, are those two a contradiction of one another? No, it's a different area of emphasis. So let's do a little biblical theology. Paul is planting churches all over the, the eastern Mediterranean. Okay? James is what? He's a, he's a pastor of a church. He's got very, very pastoral, you know, with one distinct community. Something's going on there, and he's writing a letter that um, talks about that particular problem. And so he's not disagreeing with Paul. What he's doing is writing a letter about works, about what the Christian life looks like in light of faith, okay, that looks a little bit different than Paul, but it's not a contradiction. Does that make sense? So these two, understanding who James is and understanding who Paul is and their contexts help us to interpret um, what it is that they're, they're writing and then put that in the larger context of, of faith. Of a of fully orbed understanding of faith. Does that make sense? Or am I confusing the heck out of everybody? All right? Okay. And then, if you read the Gospels, um, which I really don't like saying Gospels because there's only one Gospel, right? Um, the, the four Gospel accounts. Um, the, again, they're writing one Gospel, one Gospel message, but it's four different emphases of Christ, of the person of Christ. So Matthew talks about Christ as the Messianic king. He's writing to a Jewish audience. So he's emphasizing uh, Christ's, um, Jesus's kingship. Um, Mark writes as the su- uh, writes of Christ as the suffering servant. Um, Luke, as he's a Greek, and uh, Greek intellectual writing to Greek intellectuals, and he portrays Jesus as the Son of Man. And then finally, John has Jesus as the Son of God. So you get these four different perspectives of who Jesus is when you read the Gospels. That's why they read a little bit different. They don't contradict, but they emphasize one area over another. Okay? And I think it's, it paints a beautiful pic- picture. Right? One uh, scholar said the Gospel writers were like four... Um, Master artists all writing, you know, painting their own portrait of, of the Messiah, of Jesus. All right, so that was biblical theology. Do you, have, do you think you have a rough understanding of what biblical theology is? Think about by the biblical theology is theology through time, um, during the, the Bible, Bible period. Systematic theology. What is systematic theology? You might tell me. No? Okay. Systematic theology is organized topically and seeks to present the entire scriptural teaching on each topic or doctrine one at a time. This is generally the kind of theology that we're uh, more accustomed to. Okay? So uh, what would be some of the topics of systematic theology? Now, again, I'm going to throw the fancy words out there. The point is not the fancy words, and it's not even memorizing the whole list. It's just, I want to give you an idea of these are the generally, when you read the systematic theology, these are the topics that are generally there, okay? Now, put them in alphabetical order. It's not ordered by um, importance. Angelology and demonology. What do you think that's a study of? Angels and demons. That one's kind of, uh, kind of uh, obvious. How about anthropology? Study of mankind, right? What kind of questions do you think the study of anthropology answers? I'm sorry? Why we exist? Maybe. That's more of a theology proper thing, I think. Yes, ma'am? Where we came from? Okay. Uh, how about um, uh, mankind is made in the what? Image of God. Well, what does that mean? Okay. That would be studying anthropology. Uh, 
you know, um, a psychologist believes that you are nothing more than, um, let me rephrase that, a psychologist has been trained, regardless of whether or not they believe it, that you are nothing more than atoms, material, um, but atoms in motion, okay? That you have no spiritual concept or is a spiritual component. Uh, biblically, you are both matter, material, and spirit, okay? You're both. Um, you are depraved or sinful, okay? Um, those are... Those are anthropological um, questions. Um, bibliology. You want to take a wild guess? Study of the Bible. Some people call it prolegomena. I call it, uh, which means first things. Um, I'm fine with, with bibliology. And that's actually going to, well, I'm not going to say that yet. Christology. Take a wild guess, right? Study of Christ. Who 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 is Christ? Christ is... Fully divine, fully human. You know, what is the work that Christ did on the cross? Uh, those are questions of uh, Christology. Ecclesiology. The church. Those are things like church government. Um, what is the church? What's the relationship of the church to Israel? Okay. Eschatology. Everybody knows this one. Okay. So the end times. Harmodiology, you get extra points if you get this one. There you go. Study of sin. Okay, that's a fun one. Yeah, it's, we have a lot of fun studying harmodiology. Pneumatology. Holy Spirit. Okay, when you see pneuma, it can mean wind or spirit. So think uh, pneuma is pneumatic, kind of air, that sort of thing. So yeah, pneumatology. Study of the Holy Spirit. Soteriology. Salvation, right? Um, justification by grace through faith. Propitiation, atonement. Um, the work that Christ did on the cross. Different things like that. And then theology proper. Now, most people will say that theology proper is the study of God the Father. But then what do we do? We study the attributes of God. We study the Trinity, things like that. So I, I think th theology proper is the study of God as a whole. And then there's uh, patrology, I think they call it, as the study of the Father. But, but these are generally the way things are, are organized. So where do you most often see these categories expressed in local churches? Like on a website, where would you, where would you go to find out what? Statement of faith. Okay, our statement of faith is more or less broken into those um, uh, those categories. Not in that order, of course, but um, that's the way our modern church tends to think about the categories of, of theology. Um, we have to remember that these categories are not marbles in a drawer, and what I mean by that is a lot of people when we study theology. It's like there's, each of these things are studied in isolation. So, for example, eschatology. You know, what do you do when you're studying eschatology? You open up the book of Revelation, and then maybe you go to Matthew 25, you know, and maybe, I don't know, some Zechariah or some Daniel or something, right? And that's about the end of it. Well, you can't really do eschatology without understanding the relationship between Israel and the church. And so what you have to do is get your ecclesiology down. Once you get your ecclesiology down, then you can begin to look at your eschatology. Oh, and by the way, you also kind of need to understand creation to really understand eschatology. And by the way, you need to kind of study eschatology to really study creation, but we'll leave that one alone for right now. Um, so we shouldn't think of these, these different categories as just marbles you know, rolling around in the drawer that are independent of one another and, and bounce off of each other every once in a while. They're inherently tied together. You know, almost anything that you throw out there, almost any doctrine, almost any point of application that you throw out there is going to involve at least two of these. You know, now some, okay, will fit cleanly into one category or another, but by and large, you cross boundaries. 
Like, for example, I gave for both Christology and soteriology, I taught, bless you, a couple of times. I said, um, I gave examples of the work that Christ did on the cross. That's a, that's a Christological topic, but it's also a soteriological topic. Okay. And then finally, which do you think should be studied first? What do you think? Who, who said? Theology proper. Okay. So, um, how do you, where do you go to study theology proper? Okay, Biblia. But, but how do you understand what, what the Bible is without understanding who God is? Oh, but how do you study who God is without understanding what? It's hard. The, but you got the two, right? Almost every systematic theology either starts off with um, theology proper or um, bibliology. And most of the time it's bibliology. And we're going to start off with bibliology. You know, it's one of those things you got to start somewhere. And it's, there's not a perfect starting point. Okay. Um, how do you understand the Right. It, right. How do you understand the infallibility of the Bible unless you understand who God is? That's what you're asking? Exactly. Right? But, how, you know, it, so it's a circular, it's a circular thing. And, but all worldviews, all meaningful subjects have to begin somewhere, and that somewhere is ultimately circular. Okay. Yes, sir? Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and all of this comes out of the Bible. Yes, absolutely. All right. Historical theology, this is the last one. Um, historical theology is the study of the development of the history of Christian doctrine and how it has been understood throughout different periods of church history. Um, it's generally in the categories of systematic theology. So, for example, let's see. Well, I'll give you an example in a minute. So like biblical theology, it's chronological in nature, um, but unlike biblical theology, it's tightly bound with the church history. So you don't do historical theology before the closing of the canon. Does that make sense? So it's almost like biblical theology is the chronological study of, of theology um, before the closing of the canon, and then once the canon is closed, then you go into historical theology. And... Uh, so what is the value of studying historical theology today? So let me give you an example. Um, the Trinity. So pretty much, I mean, well, nobody in the first or second century of the church, or even the third century of the church, articulated the Trinity in the way that we, we articulate it today. Okay? That doesn't, that doesn't mean that the Trinity is a later invention. It just means that kind of the art, a, lot of, a lot of the issues that deal with the doctrine of the Trinity weren't thought about prior to the 4th century. So what I mean by that is, for example, in the early 4th century, there was a heretic named Arius. And Arius taught that Jesus was a created being that the, the Son of God was a created being. And so um, there was a response, um, there was a, a council in response to him, it's called the, the Council of Nicaea, where they, they ended up ultimately um, articulating the Trinity in the way that we understand it today. Okay, And so what happens is, in studying historical theology, is... You, you understand, you come out of Bible times, you kind of come out of apostolic times, then you go into the early days of church history with the church fathers and, and folks of that nature, and they encountered heresy. And then what you do is you see how they handled the heresy. And so they, what would happen is they would encounter heresy, and answering that heresy, they would refine their theology. 
then they'd run into another heresy, and they would deal with that and refine their theology. And so the doctrine of the Trinity, um, as we know it today, was a biblical teaching that was formulated in response to heresy. Does that make sense? Because you know, a lot of times you don't know all the crazy things that people are going to come up with, and so you have to interact. It's almost like you interact with heretics to, to really refine what it is that you, um, what you believe, if that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. So what's the value in studying historical theology today? Pretty much every heresy has been dealt with. Jehovah's Witnesses, they didn't come about until the 19th century, but their heresy was dealt with in the 4th century. You know, um, mystics were dealt with in the 3rd century. There's all these different heresies that we see today, but they go all, all of them, I mean, nothing's new under the sun. They all go back to these early ancient, ancient heresies. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Wrapping up. So this class will mostly be a systematic, um, uh, systematic theology class. Uh, here's a rough sequence for the first six weeks or so, subject to change. Um, yeah. So we're going to get into, well, we're gonna, we just wrapped up the intro. So next time we're going to get into God's Word. And we're going to study um, bibliology. And like I said, some people call it prolegomic. Pro- Prolegomena. Um, once I think we can do that in a week, maybe. Um, if we do make it, then the following week we'll get into Trinitarianism um, and the attributes of God. We'll probably do the attributes first. Um, but I, I have a, a passion for Trinitarianism because I think it's very, it's an underemphasized and misunderstood um, doctrine, but it's so vitally important to the to the church. And then, um, and then the person of Christ. And so it's a tall order, but we're going to try to wrap those up in, um, in the next six weeks, including today. And then after that, I think Mike Garrett is going to be teaching a week. And then, um, and then when Ken comes back, um, we're, Ken and I are going to kind of divvy up the rest of the class and arm wrestle over who does what, right? Um, I definitely want him teaching ecclesiology because that is totally his thing. Um, but I really wanted a couple of these. So, cool. Um, any questions? Okay. It'll be more fun next week. It'll be more profitable next week, I think. But we had to go through the ideas of what systematic theology and biblical theology were. and it's, That's kind of hard to do in a, in a lively way. All right? Cool. Groovy. Stuart, do you mind closing us? Father, thank you for uh, giving us this, this, these different concepts of, of how to study you. And I, I pray that your spirit would, would continue to guide us to a deeper understanding of you and your word. And uh, maybe you would use that for your glory and our good.